This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Defense Department has been working under a leadership diversity plan since the Obama administration. A special commission issued a long list of recommendations back in 2011, and that stemmed from a mandate in the defense authorization law from 2009. For how the department has done, we turn to the Program Director for Diversity and Inclusion Evaluations in the DOD Office of Inspector General, Dana Johnson. Ms. Johnson, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. And review the mandates, the reports, the NDAA provisions. There's a lot of interlocking pieces here that have given this mandate to DOD. What are they operating under here? So this is the first evaluation that we issued recently related to military diversity and the DOD Diversity and Inclusion Strategic Plan. We use this evaluation as a gauge to see how well the department implemented the recommendations from the Military Leadership Diversity Commission 2011 report. We looked at documents from as far back as 2009 for this particular evaluation. However, there are older documents that reference military leadership diversity relating back to the 90s. Yeah, so this has been a long-term journey. And these recommendations that came from that commission in 2011, just review what those were. What do they recommend DOD do? The recommendations now, they were 18 recommendations directed to the department. So they vary in relation to leadership, including women in combat, accountability reviews, ensuring that there's a diverse workforce going forward in the department. So it worked up really not just the leadership, but all of the ranks, it sounded like, were part of these recommendations. Yes, that is correct. All right. So you looked at the 18 recommendations, and uh, basically, what did you find with respect to how well they were carrying them out? We found that the department and the services implemented six of the 18 recommendations identified in the report from 2011. We also found that the Office of Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness and the Services for Diversity and Inclusion Offices took some actions but did not fully implement the remaining 12 recommendations. And the six that they had come out with and did, what briefly did those accomplish? The six recommendations were related to adopting the definition of diversity, leadership within the department and the services. They must make diversity an institutional priority. Recommendations eight was related to services, optimizing the ability for members to make informed career choices. They also implemented the recommendation related to whether or not the services should eliminate combat exclusion policies for women. And they also recommended that the Office of the Secretary of Defense organizational structure be aligned to ensure that a sustained focus on diversity and inclusion initiatives should be established and create a position for the chief diversity officer who reports directly to the SECDEF. All right. So that's good progress. And just in general, the 12 remaining ones, what do those generally require that they have not implemented yet? Now, the 12 remaining recommendations, some of them were related to core competency, expanding the pool of candidates, improving recruiting, performance expectations and promotion criteria and processes. And also, there were a number of accountability reviews and accountability mechanisms that have not been fully implemented. All right. We're speaking with Dana Johnson. She is the Program Director for Diversity and Inclusion Evaluations in the DOD Office of Inspector General. And by the way, did the look-see that you did, the evaluation that you did, reveal the fact, yes or no, whether the leadership is in fact more diverse than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago? 
So that was not one of the things we looked at during this particular evaluation. Okay. So is that something you might look at later on? Yes. So our plan was to look at what they had done as far as the recommendations related to the MLDC report. And then we were going to go forward and start to kind of plan out and track out future potential evaluations based on the results from this report. And do you feel that the Pentagon has sufficient ways to measure the progress of its own on on implementing these goals since they still have 12 to go, 12 recommendations to get through? While I cannot answer on behalf of the department, we did make an overarching recommendation to the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness to develop a plan of actions and milestones to implement all recommendations from the 2011 report. And who is responsible in the Pentagon? Is it simply the personnel and HR function channel, or is it maybe the combatant commands? Or I mean, it sounds like a kind of a matrixed responsibility they would have to have here. So we found that there was no official responsible for the oversight progress. So our report included another recommendation for appointing an official responsible for oversight of the implementation of the recommendations. And as far as the services, each service has its own diversity and inclusion office, and those directors of those offices should work with the appointed official to ensure consistency and adequate documentation are maintained to demonstrate implementation of the recommendations. And in the fourth estate, you know, the Pentagon type of agencies, Office of the Secretary of Defense, do they have similar officials the way the armed services do to look after this diversity question? Yes, they do. The Office of Secretary of Defense appointed the director for diversity, equity, and inclusion. All right. And so then what else did you recommend? You've mentioned a couple of recommendations that you made, but I think there were a few more, right? So we made a large number of recommendations to the department. The three most important recommendations relate to the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense, appointing an official to oversee the progress of the recommendations, the service-level diversity inclusion offices implementing all recommendations that are still outstanding, and then the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense develop a plan of actions and milestones to implement the MLDC recommendations. Those are the top three. Because this was a pretty hefty report, even by IG standards, at 88 pages. <laughs> and what was the reaction? What are you hearing back? Do the people responsible generally agree with you? Uh, we had general concurrences from OSD and the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness and the uh, Director for Diversity and Equity and Inclusion. We also heard from the Air Force, and they generally agreed with our recommendations, as did the Navy. We have not heard back yet from the Army and the Marine Corps. All right. Dana Johnson is Program Director for Diversity and Inclusion Evaluations in the Defense Department Office of Inspector General. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career 
at the FBI, and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think it would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way, 
But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all, and a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. 
I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Whether it's Baker's Simple Truth Turkey or Mac and Cheese with Murray's English Cheddar or pie made with fresh Cosmic Crisp apples, there are many dishes we look forward to sharing during the holidays. And Baker's has all the fresh ingredients you need to turn today's holidays into tomorrow's memories. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy 5 or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone.